What's up, Rocky Podcast listeners? This is the Rocky Mountain National Podcast. It is Friday, June 30th, the last day of June. So happy early July to everybody. Uh, We appreciate you coming along for the ride. This week's episode is super cool. We have Cynthia Langeth. She is the ranger, the uh, lead interpretive ranger up at the Alpine Visitor Center. So we're going to learn all about things alpine, from the flowers to the animals to the weather and things to watch out for, all sorts of stuff like that. So definitely stay tuned. Before we get started, we wanted to give you a couple of pieces of news. First of all, Old Fall River Road is open. It uh, just opened up like while we were recording this. So Old Fall River Road is now open for your driving, walking, or whatever pleasure. Uh, it is one way up only. If you don't know that, it's one way from the bottom to the top. And we have had some times where it's been super busy last year and we've had to shut down traffic in the middle of the day. So if you're planning on coming, as with everything, arrive early or come later in the evening. Uh, it's a beautiful road. So if you've never done that before, check it out. And it leads up to the Alpine Visitor Center where Cynthia and all of our Alpine Rangers are that we're going to talk about today on the podcast. Uh, Another thing with roads, we do have road construction going on if you're coming to the park. So Moraine Park Campground Road, there's some construction there. It can be like five to 15 minute delays pretty soon after you turn off Bear Lake Road. And then we also have some pavement preservation stuff, keeping our pavement in good shape uh, throughout the park. And that's just in various areas. So if you come to an area where cars are stopped for a little bit, that's probably what it is, unless everybody is stopping in the middle of the road and looking at elk, which you should not do. So hopefully that gets moved on. But otherwise, it's probably pavement preservation. We've got a program coming up that we want to tell you about. It is Climbing Long's Peak. So this is going to be some of our climbing rangers that live and breathe Long's Peak every day as their job, talking about climbing Colorado's favorite 14er, Long's Peak. Um, They're going to talk about climbing and hiking routes, lessons learned, how to prepare and manage for risks, and all the things that are involved if you're thinking about a climb. Um, This program is free and open to anybody, uh, and it is going to be at 7.30 p.m. on the evenings of July 5th and July 21st at the Beaver Meadows Visitor Center. So again, 7.30 p.m., July 5th and July 21st at the Beaver Meadows Visitor Center Amphitheater. So come and check that out. And one last shout-out before we head into the podcast the Rocky Pledge. So we've been putting this on our social media uh, and we also have it on our website. We have come up with something this summer called the Rocky Pledge. It is a pledge that you can take um, by yourself, with a group, out loud, in your head, whatever, however you want to do it. Um, We just ask that it be meaningful to you. So if you go to go.nps.gov forward slash Rocky Pledge, You'll see our Rocky Pledge logo, you'll see the pledge itself, and you'll see uh, ways that you can join in. Um, We just have so many people coming up to the park now. And actually, in a future episode, you're going to hear about that uh, very soon. We're going to have Kyle Patterson, the public information officer for the park, here. And we're going to talk about the pledge and, and what you can do to help keep Rocky beautiful and protected. So go there to learn more about that. We're also encouraging people to take shots on social media. Um, You'll see our logo is like two hands um, lovingly encircling a 
a bighorn sheep. Um, so if you want to go out in the park and take pictures with your hands and circling stuff or any, any creative ideas, anything like that, just tag them with the hashtag Rocky Pledge. And uh, we go through and look at that hashtag and we repost shots and we have a bunch of followers. So, you know, win-win for everybody. All right, we are going to head into the podcast. Again, this is Cynthia Langeth, the uh, Alpine Visitor Center uh, main interpretive ranger, and you're going to learn all sorts of stuff about her and the Alpine. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be awesome. <laughs> Here, everyone, put on these Britney Spears mics. <laughs> okay, so I will give you a little intro before okay. the beginning of the podcast, so we won't have to go through your full name and everything. So we will start out. Uh, yeah. Then you can. You can monitor, listen in, to hear myself talk. <laughs> your voice is in my, my head. Voice, and it's mine. Yeah. I hear my own voice in my head. <laughs> don't have an exact outline. That's okay. We just kind of freewheel. We can wing it. So we'll start with, Cynthia, what do you do here at Rocky Mountain National Park? Like, What's your official title? So my official title is Park Ranger Interpretation and EMT, which is kind of an interesting combination. Yes. Uh, but I primarily um, spend my time in the summers in the alpine tundra of the park mm-hmm. and manage the Alpine Visitor Center uh-huh. operation. Uh-huh. What about in the winter? So in the winter, um, there's a lot of catch-up from summer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, after hosting three and a half million of your closest friends, it yeah. takes a little uh, cleanup time. So uh, in the winter, um, we do a lot of preparation for the summer. And I also get to lead snowshoe walks and full moon oh, hikes nice. in the winter, which is pretty awesome. Cool. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll come back and talk about that in a little bit. So Alpine Visitor Center. Uh, Rocky's pretty famous for its Alpine Tundra. It is. Is it not? <laughs> On the way driving up here, we saw lots and lots of people eager to see it. Um, so I thought we'd start by just talking about Alpine Tundra, what it is, what makes it, what it is, Nietzsche, it is, it is, because of what it is. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess first we could talk about Tundra in general. So what is Tundra in general? Yeah, so tundra is, I guess, a slightly more generic term that just um, describes um, ground that is um, free of trees. And kind of historically, it's also been defined as, um, you know, a lot of permanently frozen ground. That certainly I don't think is necessarily the case from a scientific standpoint today. Mm -hmm. But when tundra was um, kind of initially used, it was to describe a an area free of trees that had a lot of permanently frozen ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that either, you know, occurs where you are at a, um, you know, really far north latitude mm-hmm. uh, in the northern hemisphere, or you're at a really high elevation, which is, of course, what we have here in the park. Right. Okay, so tundra, place without trees, that's due to temperature, I guess, instead of dryness, sort of. Alpine tundra is because of alpine being high elevation, right? So it's due, exactly. due to Versus the elevation. Versus Arctic tundra, which would right. be latitude-based. Yeah. Yeah, so if you want to find uh, uh, tundra due to latitude, you have to go very far north. You or do. 
if you want to find tundra somewhere like Colorado, you just have to go up to in Rocky. Where does tundra begin, generally speaking? What's the so range? So generally speaking, it occurs around 11,000, 11,400 feet in elevation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Rocky and kind of in the <clears throat> this region of the southern Rocky Mountains. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly as you go further south, tundra is um, found at higher elevations. Mm-hmm. You go further north, it's found at lower elevations. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's alpine tundra at the equator. Right. Um, if mountains are high enough. If it's tall enough. Exactly. Yeah, I worked in Denali National Park for a while, and I think their south-facing slopes was around 2,400 feet, mm-hmm. and north-facing was around 1,800 or something like that. And yeah, you just keep going north, and eventually it's sea level. Yeah. you <laughs> Takes a while. Don't have trees even at sea level, Yeah, which is exactly. pretty amazing. So at that 11,000-foot mark here, approximately, in Rocky, what is it about that elevation that makes it so there are no trees. So, you know, uh, certainly there's a lot of factors that influence um, tree line, uh-huh. but the but the primary driver is temperature. Mm-hmm. Uh, trees need a long enough period during the summer to basically go into trees. Mm-hmm. Um, they need to have enough time to put on new growth and grow upwards. And if the warmest temperature, average warmest temperature during the um, summer months is below 50 degrees, then you pretty much don't have trees anymore. So that 50-degree isotherm, as it's called, is the um, determining factor for tree line. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, it's just too cold. Um, trees don't have enough time to grow up into trees. Right. It is too cold and harsh for any tree <laughs> to make it. Yes. We, de- we definitely get the little um, kind of shrubby trees uh-huh. we call crumholtz, uh-huh. which um, technically are the same tree species you find down in the big majestic forest. Uh-huh. But they're a little stunted up here. Yeah, Krumholtz. That's an interesting Isn't that word. Isn't a great name? Yeah, it's a German word, right? Yes. Um, crooked wood. Crooked wood. Yeah, you see it. I'm trying to think of some places visitors go. They're really good to see it, like Rainbow Curve. Or... Yeah, Rainbow Curve is definitely approaching that yeah, um, kind of close. transition zone between mm-hmm. the forest and the alpine tundra. Uh-huh. Yeah, and even um, you know, even at pull-offs like Forest Canyon, uh, Medicine Bow Curve, uh, you can see examples of Krumholtz. Yeah. Yeah, it's really amazing. It's almost like natural bonsai or something. They just grow <laughs> super close to the ground, really it's gnarled. They just Mother they Nature's uh, little pruning. pockets. Yeah, yeah. Anywhere where they can find a little bit of shelter from the wind, even from themselves. Um, it's amazing how thick it can grow in places too. Okay, so alpine tundra. Rocky has a lot of alpine tundra, right? Mm-hmm. About how a much? third of the park. About a third of the park. Um, and the park is just under a quarter million acres, so mm-hmm. a lot of areas of alpine tundra. And I think one of the things that makes Rocky so cool and unique is that we have this road that takes you right up into alpine tundra. It's paved. You can see it in the summer <laughs> when the road is open. Um, and so when people are driving up, that's what they're seeing. Um, one thing that I want to make sure we talk about, so we'll talk about it now with the alpine tundra. So no trees can grow up here, but... Other stuff can grow up here. What other kind of things grow on the alpine tundra, and when do they grow? Yeah, so surprisingly, I think to a lot of visitors um, and even staff when they first start working here is how diverse the alpine tundra is. You know, 35 miles an hour in your car can kind of look like a lawn, um, but when you stop and really spend some time taking a closer look, there's actually over 300 plant species that make their home in the um, alpine tundra here in the park. Yeah. Some of those are endemic to high elevations in this area. So they're only um, found? They're only found kind of in the southern Rocky Mountains. Mm-hmm. And then some of them are circumpolar. You'll find them mm-hmm. uh, in tundra 
uh, up above the Arctic Circle. Mm-hmm. You'll find them in other mountain regions in the world. So it's it's a pretty cool mix of plant species, a lot of flowering plants, which mm-hmm. certainly is what draws a lot of people that um, come here up into the high elevations in the summers yeah. to see the wildflowers. Yeah. Um, and then it's just amazing how tiny and slow growing they can be. Um, you know, the growing season here is kind of short compared to what most people are used to in their gardens. And about how long is it? Well, it depends. depends it depends. Right. If you're in a really sunny, windswept area where you're snow free for um, a longer period of time, uh-huh. you know, you might have a really posh growing season of like 90 days. Ooh, 90 days. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're talking like, you know, living the life. Uh-huh. Um, and then other plant communities, other um, areas in the tundra where there's really late-lying snow Mm -hmm. may only have a 35 or 40-day growing season. So you don't have a lot of time to do business as a plant. So you kind of have to um, have some, you know, tricks up your sleeve in order to start growing at lower temperatures and put your flowers out into the world a little earlier than than a lot of lower elevation plants. So it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. What are some of the tricks? Well, certainly um, being able to photosynthesize that much lower temperatures uh-huh. than your counterparts down low. Uh-huh. So a lot of alpine plants will start growing when temperatures are still, you know, 32, 34 wow. degrees Fahrenheit, just above freezing, really. Yeah. Um, and then just growing um, quickly and putting a lot of energy into flowering right away mm-hmm. because it's actually more energy intensive to make seeds. So huh. you want to have a longer period of the summer um, where you're putting that energy into making seeds for the next generation. Mm-hmm. So a lot of plants up here flower pretty early. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they have, you know, hair and yeah, that's red one that I think pigments really cool. and waxy coatings and just all kinds of different adaptations depending on which plant you're talking about. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's, it's just really cool to get to know the alpine plants a little more and, uh, you know, just really be surprised and I think impressed by how uniquely adapted life is up here. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've done studies where they've taken high elevation plants down to greenhouses and they drop dead. Really? They're like, life is too good. Too I just good. can't take it. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool that some of these plants only can grow here in this what seems like impossible, yeah. harsh environment. Yeah. I remember, yeah, when I first started working up in Alaska and we would, you know, be out and just to see all the different kinds of plants. And that was another thing, like you're saying, circumpolar or just mm-hmm. tundra in general plants. I recognize so many plants here. Some of them are the same species. Some of them are really close, even though it's so far away, which I thought was amazing. Yeah. Same thing with the hair and and uh, all those different adaptations. And I also think the diversity is amazing. I guess, is that because, like you're saying, conditions vary so much from place to place, and it is so on the limit of where it's possible to grow that just small changes in, like you're saying, snow freeness or sun Mm -hmm. exposure or moisture retention or soils. Is that what drives that amazing amount of diversity that you can sometimes see? I think so. You know, it's really interesting up here. You can walk just a short distance Uh and transition from one very kind of specific plant community into another that's that's very different, you know, Mm -hmm. from a super dry, rocky windswept fell field into a more lush meadow, Um, you know, another 100 yards down a trail, you might come to a wetland. Mm -hmm. Um, So it really is, uh, you know, it's like, it's like a big city that's got all these really unique neighborhoods, you know, ethnically and architecturally and, um, you know, economically, it's just, you know, it's the same thing, but Uh it's, you know, the natural world doing that on a, on a smaller scale. I think the point that you made is really, really good is that 
I think this happens too a lot of times in, in desert parks or just anywhere where the conditions are, are difficult, is that when you're driving through, even at 35 or 25 miles an hour, it kind of looks like, uh, there's not that much going on mm-hmm. out there. And then if you stop and you actually start walking some of our trails, which we can talk about, and you look closer, you realize, whoa, there's so much stuff. You almost have to get your nose down in the ground. If you ever see anybody with their nose in the ground, <laughs> their butt in the air, they're probably smelling or just taking pictures of their flowers. We call them belly flowers. Belly you have flowers. to get on your belly to actually yeah, appreciate them. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, but one, this is one thing I want to make sure that we cover is that I want to talk about our tundra protection areas mm-hmm. that we have in the park and, and why those exist. And so let's talk about that first. So we have tundra protection zones in the mm-hmm. park areas. Um, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I think one of the things that I really kind of admire about the alpine tundra is its incredible ability to adapt and overcome this really harsh um, environmental conditions. But at the same time, because of the harsh environmental conditions, it's also really fragile. Mm -hmm. So um, because plants grow so slowly up here, you know, a few careless, um, you know, footprints can wipe out decades worth of growth for some of these species. So we learned from a lot of research that was done um, back in the 1960s uh, that tundra is really slow to recover from Mm -hmm. trampling And because we get so many visitors and we have kind of, um, you know, localized the the impacts up here with our major viewpoints and and parking areas in those particular spots, it's just not feasible to let folks kind of wander around on the tundra itself because there's too many feet and they're going to cause long-term damage that is going to take, you know, 50-plus years to recover if no one continues to step on it. (laughs) Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So, in those areas, we've we've created tundra protection zones where you actually are required by um, park regulation to stay on paved trails or in parking areas. Mm -hmm. And that's simply to limit the impacts of thousands of people, you know, daily during our peak visitation months um, from from really causing, you know, almost irreversible damage to the tundra. Mm -hmm plant communities in those areas. So, so it's, yeah, it's really important in those high visitation areas that folks are um, staying on those paved trails and really allowing the tundra to, um, to thrive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that's something that surprises tons of people is like, it takes a really long time for these tiny, tiny plants to grow. And yeah, when they get trampled, it can take so long for them to grow back. And yeah. I mean, there's species that put on like three leaves in a year. Yeah. That's um, amazing. You know, and then next year they put on three more leaves, uh, <laughs> you know, or they, um, or they're like a dinner plate sized plant when they're, you know, 50 years old. So you can wipe out quite a bit of growth just by accidentally grinding your foot when you're walking across the tundra. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, so if people do want to be able to see and kind of walk through the tundra, get close to a lot of flowers, but not trample it and ruin it for the next 50 (laughs) years and keep it beautiful for everybody. Where are some places that you like to send people here to look and and see everything up close firsthand? Yeah, well, there's there's definitely a lot of, um, you know, smaller pull-offs along Trail Ridge Road Mm -hmm. up above Treeline where, you know, two or three cars can stop and people can get out. And and then it's, it's totally fine to walk on the tundra. You know, it's resilient enough that it can handle being stepped on, you know, a handful of times um, in a, you know, span of a few days. Um, and in those areas, if folks are real careful and they, you know, walk on bare spots and rocks when they can and walk softly on the plants when they are stepping on them, 
it's really not going to cause long-term damage. And in fact, it's a great way to to get to know the tundra a little bit mm-hmm. more. So um, really any of those smaller pull-offs mm-hmm. uh, where we don't have, you know, large parking areas and signs that indicate you need to stay on a paved trail. Okay. Um, it, it's fine to go out on the tundra. And uh, it's interesting, you know, a lot of visitors don't realize that you can walk on the tundra mm-hmm. um, outside those tundra protection areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and another great way to experience the alpine tundra and get to walk, you know, off trail and really get down on your belly and, and check out the flowers is to go with one of our tundra nature walks, which are mm-hmm. offered daily through um, through the summer at oh, yeah. 930 a.m. Uh, and we t- definitely take folks off trail on those hikes. And so it's 930 a.m. every yeah, morning at the Alpine Visitor Alpine Center. Visitor Center. Yeah. Go out with a ranger. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, through early August. Oh, that's awesome. Our last our last podcast, if anyone missed it, you can tune in. We talked with Kathy Brazelton a lot about ranger programs in general and mm-hmm. all the stuff that's going on. So that's a really good one um, up here. What are some other ranger programs at Alpine Visitor Center that people might be into? So in addition to the Tundra Nature Walks, which we offer every day, um, we have uh, a talk about the human history of the area, kind uh-huh. of specifically around the roads and routes people have taken mm-hmm. through the mountains over time. We call that um, Road to the Top, and that one's offered twice weekly. And then we also offer um, All About Lightning uh, talks three times a week. And uh, that one is is really good just to learn a little bit more about how to be safe in the park, uh, not only above treeline, but just when you're out exploring and adventuring in general. But certainly, you know, big... Um, reason behind the All About Lightning talk is um, lightning is one of our environmental hazards in the summertime. So we like to educate folks as best we can about mm-hmm. how to, you know, how to plan ahead and how to, you know, make good decisions when they're in the park so that we don't have anyone um, injured or killed by lightning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lightning is a big one up here, yeah. I think. <laughs> I mean, everyone knows Colorado gets a lot of lightning. But when you're up here above treeline and there's no trees... The tallest thing around is often you. Um, could you talk a little bit about, yeah, just, just some of those really general tips for folks as they're coming yeah. to visit? Because I think it's something that people just, you know, the alpine is so different, alpine tundra, from what most of us live in or experience mm-hmm. on a daily basis. And that's one of the things that I think people just don't, you just don't think about until you're seeing it and it's too late <laughs> and it's scary. Yeah, you know, I think the alpine tundra is kind of otherworldly to a lot of our visitors for a multitude of reasons. Uh Um, And one is, you know, the weather up here. You come up from Denver, it's, you know, 95 degrees, and then you step out of your car up here, and the wind is blowing, and the wind chills, you know, 42 degrees, and you're still wearing flip-flops and a tank top. Yeah. Um, So that kind of throws people for a loop. I mean, even right now, I don't know what it is in Denver today. I think it's in the 90s. Yeah, it's supposed to be real hot today. And right now, it's in the low 60s Mm -hmm. up here. With a breeze. I'm glad I have on a wind jacket. I've got on a vest. And this is a hot day. Yeah, this is a really nice. This is a really warm day. Warm day yeah. Here, so yeah, yeah, definitely. That's a that's a great tip. Yeah, and then I think too, um, you know, when it comes to thunderstorms and lightning, you know, so many of our visitors and myself included, you know, growing up, you you watch storms build from a distance, mm-hmm. and then they are, you know, they're coming your way or they're moving away from you. 
But you kind of have this um, this almost like theater experience when it comes to, to weather mm-hmm. uh, a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And when you're in the high mountains, the weather often builds right where you are. So you don't see it coming. You are in it as it's yeah. developing. And so I think it takes people by surprise sometimes. It happens so fast. It really, it really You'll does. You'll see something off in the distance. And like you said, when you're, you're like, oh, you know, look yeah. at that storm. It's coming. And then. Or those puffy clouds are getting a little darker right. at the it's bottom. It's there in yeah. minutes. Yeah. Sometimes. So. So I think it does take people by surprise. And then, you know, I think a a lot of visitors just don't take lightning as seriously as they should Mm -hmm. um, here in the park as far as a real risk, a real Mm -hmm. hazard. Um, So, you know, definitely just getting out and playing in the high elevations early in the morning when Mm -hmm. there's less likely to be thunderstorms is always a good idea. You know, check the weather forecast ahead of time because we certainly can have thunderstorms develop in the morning. Mm -hmm. You know, we've had thunder and lightning at 10 a.m., um, it's not always, you know, noon or one o'clock. And then, you know, just make sure you have kind of a, an escape plan. Um, you know, don't push yourself. Uh, if you think the weather is changing, turn around. The only safe place to be in a lightning storm is in a substantial building or in a, you know, hard-topped vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even outdoors, if you get below tree line, if you get into the forest, you're still not as safe as you would be um, inside. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really just about making good decisions ahead of time and choosing wisely about how you're going to recreate and how you're going to spend your time in the park mm-hmm. um, so that you don't put yourself in one of those situations that can become dangerous really quickly. Mm-hmm. And then I guess since we're on the topic of safety, the other thing I wanted to talk about, make sure that we hit is altitude. <laughs> so yes, we're at Alpine Visitor Center right now. Mm-hmm. We're at what altitude? So we're at 11,796 feet, so almost 11,800 feet in elevation. Okay. And Trail Ridge Road goes a bit over 12,000 feet in elevation. Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll tee you up for a question. So is there less oxygen at altitude? <laughs> there is not there less is not. oxygen oh. percentage-wise okay. as far as the amount of oxygen in our atmosphere. Uh-huh. However... There's less available oxygen to you because Mm -hmm. the molecules are more spread out. So if you kind of think about a box of air at sea level Mm -hmm. and a box of air at um, elevation, Mm -hmm. the percentage of oxygen is still the same inside that box, Mm -hmm. but there's less oxygen molecules at elevation. So So you're you're getting less oxygen as you breathe. Yeah, for sure. Um, Significantly less. Yes. So your body is working a lot harder to to get the oxygen it needs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people think like, oh, I'll be acclimated after being here a couple days. And for a lot of visitors, they do feel better after they're here for a few days, especially if they're taking care of themselves, they're getting sleep, they're eating probably more than they're used to eating. Um, They're drinking a lot of um, water. Caffeinated beverages um, do not qualify as fluids when you're coming to altitude. So, so those are all things that help. Is they help. Eat some, eat some, you know, eat a little bit more food, yeah. get some more rest, You'll drink some more You'll find you're probably water. a little hungrier than you normally are. You need to drink more water um, because, one, the environment here is very dry. Mm-hmm. And then, two, your body's just working harder to get what it needs. So mm-hmm. um, you're using up more energy, mm-hmm. more, you know, liquid in your in your system. Um, so those things can help. They definitely can help. But you don't fully acclimate until about three months, right? Um, which is the bad news, right? <laughs> uh, you know, because your red blood cells um, uh, have about a three month life cycle. So you don't get rid of the old low elevation red blood cells, all of them, until the three month mark, and create those nice new red blood cells that carry more oxygen. So yeah. while most people will often feel better after being here for a few days or a week, um, physiologically, you're not going to be acclimated yeah. for quite some time. 
and how does it how does it make people feel you know what are what are some of the like some of Awful. the basic symptoms <laughs> so you know for a lot of people they just they feel um they feel short of breath mm-hmm. a little lightheaded a little mm-hmm. fuzzy um folks will often get a mild headache mm-hmm. um you know just just kind of feeling blah yeah you just that's feel kind of yeah, just kind of run down. And that's honestly pretty normal for yeah. most folks. Yeah. Um, but what will happen is a lot of times it freaks you out, right? Like, right. why can't I catch my breath? I just did a short walk across the parking lot. Yep. So now I'm freaking out because I can't catch my breath. Yep. So now I can't catch my breath more. Right. And so I'm freaking out even more. And now I'm getting a little dizzy. And, you know, it's uh, kind of a, yeah. it's a, you know, it's like that. a self-fulfilling prophecy. I've thought about that. So just so, that feeling um, stresses people out. Yeah, it totally stresses people it, out. It, it causes anxiety. Itself. Okay. So, um, so if people are coming up, especially, I mean, I, you know, I know people, I did this when I first came yeah. here. You know, you fly, I flew in from D.C. area, drove up Destus Park. Oh, we have a few hours before dinner. Let's drive up to Alpine Visitor Center. So you're basically going from sea level to almost 12,000 feet in no time. Yeah. And just standing around, you feel, you can feel dizzy, even if you're a perfectly healthy person. Mm-hmm. So one thing is, yeah, just recognize that those are some normal symptoms. Um, and then what if, you're up here and that they do start to get, like, if your headache starts to get really acute, you know, bad. Or yeah. it really starts hurting or you're just so, feeling crappy. Really bad headache. You just you can't catch your breath no matter what you do, no matter how long you rest. Um, you know, dizzy enough that you have to sit down or you're going to fall down. Mm-hmm. You know, those are definitely more concerning symptoms. And uh, all of the rangers that work here at the Alpine Visitor Center are emergency medical technicians. Oh, okay. Everybody. And, yep, everybody. It's a requirement of the job here. And we have a medical clinic um, attached to the visitor center where we can certainly treat visitors who are having a more serious reaction to altitude mm-hmm. or something else. You know, a lot of people with pre-existing medical conditions will find that when they come to altitude, it really aggravates their condition and something that they might have had relatively good control over at home now is um, manifesting itself as a more serious medical emergency. Mm-hmm. So we certainly take those things very seriously and are happy to help folks that are having a more um, a more serious reaction to mm-hmm. the altitude. So folks shouldn't hesitate to come on into the Alpine Visitor Center and talk to a ranger if they aren't sure if what they're feeling is, quote, normal or not. Right. Good. That's great. Um and then even if you're having mild symptoms, the best cure is? The only cure is to go, go down. down. <laughs> the best and only cure. Yes. Go down in elevation. Yes. You'll be getting more oxygen. You will feel better. Descend. Yes, descend. Um, good. I think those are a lot of the safety things that I just wanted to make sure that we covered from the get-go. So we'll come back to Alpine stuff, Alpine Visitor Center, Alpine everything. But let's talk about you. Are you excited? I'm excited. I can tell how excited you are. <laughs> so Cynthia, where are you from originally? Uh, so I grew up in Missouri. Missouri. Where in so Missouri? Midwest. For our Missouri listeners. Uh, so kind of the west central part of the state. Okay. Small town near Warrensburg, Missouri. Uh-huh. And uh, when you were growing up, were you guys big national parks travelers? We were. Mountain folks went yeah. out to the mountains. Yeah. Yeah. My dad was pretty opposed to going east of our home. Yeah. <laughs> so we always went west and we visited national parks. Um, that's just kind of what we did. We uh-huh. had family that lived near Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Park, near the Redwoods in California. Um, so about every summer, we took some sort of family road trip for a week or two and hit national parks. So, you know, that was just kind of normal for me growing up. That's uh-huh. where we went on vacation. Yeah. Um, we, were, we were definitely, though, 
the park visitor that like stopped at the visitor center and got a map and then stopped at the overlooks and took pictures, uh-huh. walked the little nature trail, and then moved on to the next national park. Okay. We we weren't hikers. We weren't campers. Yeah. Um, we never went to a ranger-led program, which I find kind of That's ironic funny. since yeah. I <laughs> turned into a ranger that leads programs. Yeah. Um, you know, and I knew I wanted to be a park ranger by the time I was about 12, even really? though I had no clue what they did. I just knew they had to— well, I, because they got to live and work in places like this, and uh, that was, like, good enough for me at that age. So, you so know, the older I got, I kind of figured out what park rangers actually did, right. and but it still first, sounded it cool. Just, you went to a lot of parks. And I wanted to and you thought, be wow, there. That is cool. All the time. I want to be there more. Yeah, I think uh-huh. it was really the landscapes, you uh-huh. know, the um, like the aesthetics of Western landscapes that uh-huh. really hooked me, uh-huh. um, and that kind of spoke to me on a level even as a, you know, as a yeah. preteen and teenager that was really— meaningful and uh-huh. and I knew like I I need to be in these places. Uh-huh. So, do you have any siblings? I do. I have an older brother. Does he feel like that? Um, he or was definitely he more like oh this is fun but whatever. Well, he actually does um like outdoor um, okay. photography and uh-huh. and videography. Uh-huh. So, we both kind of ended up in fields that, you know, could have been somewhat predicted by yeah. our upbring- upbringing. And uh why do you think your parents are so into the national park thing was it because you said you did it ever since you were little had they done that with their parents um my dad did um he grew up well kind of um to a certain extent they traveled a lot um to florida so he grew up going to the beach in the um, winter months Uh he lived in michigan and then my mom um grew up on a farm in nebraska so kind of wide open spaces have Uh always been special to her Uh uh-huh um, and yeah, I think that was just kind of their thing. Yeah. And then I think a lot of it had to do too with where some of our close family lived and was situated as well. It was sure. like, if you go to Jackson, Wyoming, of course you're going to visit yeah. Grand Teton National Park yeah. and Yellowstone National Park. And you that's where, you know, I had relatives and, <laughs> right. uh, yeah. So I think, I think they both just were really drawn to the same kind of Western landscapes. I remember them really being into uh-huh. photography and. What's the first park you remember visiting? Um, the first park I remember visiting is probably the Redwoods, uh, um, in California. Uh-huh. And I remember the big trees. And then I also remember falling in the ocean and thinking I was going to get sucked out <laughs> to see, uh, and then my mom having to shake out my little pink pants in the parking lot and <laughs> sitting in my underwear in the back seat of the car was very <laughs> embarrassing. So. Okay. So that sealed it. In that did. That did. That's a very, um, Yeah. Yeah. Vivid memory yeah. for me as a child. Were there any uh, any smaller parks or like less well-known parks that you remember going to that stick in your head? Uh, I remember Craters of the Moon. Oh, okay. Um, in Idaho? Yeah. That one was really cool as a kid. The whole, you know, lava fields, but then ice caves, you know, yeah. was just really, really interesting. I remember yeah. like kind of, you know, skating in my tennis shoes on the in the ice caves, um, you know, Sorry. in early June when yeah. it was pretty warm outside yeah, so hot. it was yeah it was really that was a really interesting it's kind of southeast idaho is that correct? Yeah, yeah southeast south central yeah craters yeah. of the moon yep um yeah for folks who don't know about that we're trying to i'm asking people these things because i'm trying to highlight some of the units that people might not know about other than rocky yeah and that's a really amazing yeah like you said just bizarre place yeah, super just cool fields of of, of uh, volcanic rock and mm-hmm. ice caves and it's pretty remote um yeah, really interesting. Yeah. That's a cool one. That, that's definitely one I remember. And then I remember as a teenager visiting Fort Laramie. Uh-huh. Um, oh, yeah. That's National like, Historic Park. Like and Laramie. I really liked that park. I was kind of into history at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, and just found kind of Western history really 
fascinating. And yeah, I thought Fort Laramie was really cool. Yeah, so that's down in uh, southeast Wyoming, um, past Guernsey, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm sure are, many of our listeners are familiar with Guernsey. Just look it up, Fort Laramie. It is. It's really neat how it's been as different buildings restored to different time periods, mm-hmm. and they've done a lot of work uh, restoring it. And unlike Rocky, which is, is a very busy park, it is not a super busy park. So you really have a lot of things to yourself. Yeah. And at Guernsey State Park near there, there's a visitor center created by the CCC with exhibits from the WPA, and it is, like, in original condition. Wow. Yeah, so all the exhibits you can go in there and see, and they're all hand um, calligraphy painted it's really That's incredible. It's almost like cool. a yeah. It's almost like a WPA museum. Uh-huh, and it's kind uh-huh. of it's just in this little park, huh. and the, the building is very park rustic type architecture. Huge stones and timbers. Guernsey and, State Park. Yeah, Guernsey State okay. Park. Yeah, shout out. We didn't hit that on our um, family yeah. A lot road of people trip, don't know so. about it. I don't know if they want me telling yeah. people about it or not. But now they know. <laughs> now they know. It's really worth seeing. So you knew you wanted to be a park ranger when you were twelve. Mm-hmm. How did you go about making that dream a reality? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, when I was looking into where to go to college, uh-huh. I definitely looked for programs that, um, you know, were, were known in the kind of parks field, um, had parks and recreation majors, um, tourism majors, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, quickly kind of narrowed it down to just a handful of universities. And of course, you know, Dreamed big about going out of state, but then financial mm. reality set in, and I ended up going to the University of Missouri, uh-huh. um, which has a good parks, recreation, and tourism program. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, so I kind of went into it not knowing exactly what I would focus on, but pretty quickly realized kind of the interpretive educational side of things was what um, I was most interested in. Uh-huh. And what? why did that interest you the most? Uh, you know, I think... I, you know, I definitely was an extrovert in high school, you know, loved drama and, um, you know, kind of being the thick of things all the time. And so I like that appealed to me, like being, being the, um, the educational ranger, being the one giving the programs kind of, you know, entertaining uh-huh. visitors to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, and just also learning about these places, you know, I, um, I grew up in a rural area, and I just, you know, I always loved just exploring the creeks and forests near where I grew up mm-hmm. and trying to figure out how things in nature worked. So mm-hmm. I think that was appealing, too. Like, mm-hmm. that was my job, figuring out how things in nature worked mm-hmm. and then explaining that to yeah. park visitors. So, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of similar. It's like, oh, I get to learn about all sorts of stuff and entertain people. Exactly. Be the center of attention. This Sign me awesome. up. This is fun. <laughs> and you get to learn exactly. about so many different things, which I think is Yeah, and you're always really, really learning, cool. you know, because there's— You have to. You yeah. never are going to know everything. Yeah, so it's, it's like constant. this constant, like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so you went there. What was your first park—it didn't have to be park service, but park job of some kind? Did you do, like, internships? I did. did you... So I— um, actually worked at a state historic site in Missouri one summer giving uh-huh. tours of a of an of a lodge a home a historic home uh-huh. um Bothwell Lodge state historic site near Sedalia Missouri Bothwell Lodge. yeah so Look that was um yeah Look that was visitors. a that was a cool uh, that was a cool experience yeah. and then and then I actually got an internship in the National Park Service cuz I always knew that you know growing up in Missouri I wanted to move out west uh-huh. so I don't think my family or my friends ever expected me to stay in Missouri uh-huh. so I was pretty 
pretty excited when I got a internship at Rocky Mountain National Park between really? my junior and senior year. That was your first college. internship. Was it here. was. It was here, which is funny because we hadn't. This wasn't one of the parks we visited a lot uh-huh. as a kid. Uh-huh. I think I had come here once with my parents when I was um, maybe like thirteen or fourteen. Yeah, and I remember thinking it was beautiful, but it wasn't one of the landscapes that was kind of burned into my memory huh. as as a kid growing up. Yeah, like Grand Tetons and Grand Canyon and. Um, you know, Southwest Utah right. uh, was kind of burned into my memory more. Yeah. So I found it kind of ironic that I ended up here. And then this has become a, obviously a really special yeah. place to me over time. Yeah. What were, what were you doing with that internship? So I was doing interpretation. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, so working at yeah. the visitor centers and yeah. leading nature hikes. And, and since it wasn't burned into your memory, what did you come away from that summer thinking? Like, did it? Well, I think because I didn't grow up hiking and camping and doing those sorts of things. Uh-huh. You know, I started to dabble with that in uh-huh. college, um, kind of just locally where I went to school. And so this was the first, like, big Western landscape that I lived in and got to know more intimately as a hiker. Um, you know, I climbed Long's Peak that first summer, which was, you know, at the time, like, the hardest thing I had physically ever done. Sure. Um, kind of blew my mind. Yeah. And, uh, and just kind of, I think, built a lot of confidence in myself. Uh-huh. As an outdoors person, uh-huh. being capable of hiking and camping, um, yeah. yeah, like I planned a backpacking trip to the Grand Canyon after working here that summer for a bunch of my friends who yeah. had never, none of us had ever backpacked before, so it was kind of an epic yeah. fail in some ways, but also really awesome. <laughs> it's okay. um, That's how you learn. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. it was kind of the same way. I grew up, I was in Boy Scouts, but didn't do like backpacking yeah, or that yeah. kind of stuff. And then, yeah, I had an internship in Yellowstone one summer and just got after it, started backpacking and hiking and learning through great success and great failure, <laughs> shivering yes. nights and where you forgot something important or, yeah, exactly. you know, those things. Like that, a sleeping pad. Yeah, yeah, like a sleeping pad. Mm-hmm. Oh, it turns out they're not just to pad you. They're no. to keep you from being freezing cold. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. That this is the first place that you came. Yeah. So what about after that? What was your first, like, park service job? Did it, it was take actually, a while? Or? Um, it, it didn't. Okay. Um, the next summer after I graduated from college, I actually got a job back at Rocky Mountain National Park mm-hmm. working at the entrance stations, collecting fees and selling passes. Um, so that was my first, you know, paid job in the park ranger uniform. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a great summer. It was super fun. You know, I was fresh out of college working with a lot of other folks fresh out of college. So it was kind of like summer yeah. camp. Um, yeah. And it was, uh, yeah, it was a really good experience. And then I was able to transition into more of an interpretive position um, the following summer mm-hmm. here at Rocky Mountain National Park. And then I um, started popping around a little bit more to other national parks, which was kind of one of my goals when I was a seasonal uh-huh. park ranger. So I worked a Summer in Olympic National Park. Ooh, and, I love Olympic. Oh, man. Talk about an amazing backcountry park. Yeah, that's a that's a crazy place. Just ocean to glaciers in yeah. no time. Yeah. Rainforest. 12 feet of rain to yeah. 12 inches of rain. Yeah, exactly. A year, yeah. Yeah, really cool park. Yeah. Um, and then I worked winters in Death Valley Ooh. for three years, which um, I also love amazing. the desert. You know, your comment earlier about yeah. the desert and the alpine kind of having some similarities. Yeah. I, I definitely have always Tons. seen that and felt that, and I think it's one of the reasons I'm drawn to both environments, uh-huh. both landscapes. Yeah. But yeah, Death Valley was incredible. Talk yeah. about just, I don't know, just such a vast 
place that just I guess for that for me the desert you either love it or you don't yeah that um, seems to be the case there's not a lot case. of in between <laughs> and I absolutely love the desert so that was a really cool experience yeah, I spending too. winters there and I found that too because I, I also love Alpine I mean that's one of the reason why I was up in Alaska for a while mm-hmm. and I went to Death Valley I guess a little bit before I started working here so a few years back and uh, to work to make their new map. And so we got to go all over the park for eight days. I mean, we didn't get to go back on all the dirt roads because yeah. we didn't have time to ride on washboard for four hours, or eight <laughs> exactly. hours on a day. You know? And change two flat tires. Yeah, exactly. Around. Yeah. Um, but I agree. I feel like there are a lot of similarities. Same with the plants, like we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. Yeah. Just lots of hidden treasures. It's an amazing place. I mm-hmm. think I feel like a lot of people end up just driving through there. You yeah. kind of live in Southern California, like on the way to Vegas or somewhere. Yeah, it's actually, you know? it's it's what you travel through. Yeah, to get from point and the a speed to point limits B. are kind of high, and you kind of blow through there. Yeah. And in the summers, it is brutal, ridiculously hot. Uh, at least down in the lowlands, up high, it's nice. But yeah, an amazing place, and that's the largest National Park Service unit in the lower forty-eight. Right? It is. Yeah, it's yeah. around three million mm-hmm. acres. So it's huge, one and a half times the size of Yellowstone. I think a lot of people don't realize that. Either. Yeah. Um. And it has an amazing map. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it is a pretty cool map, but that was a really fun well, it's one to make. a pretty cool place. I believe it has a pretty cool Yeah, place. it is. It is a really cool place. And then what about after that? Uh, and then I came back here for several seasons. Uh-huh. I actually worked as a seasonal park ranger at the Alpine Visitor Center, which was uh-huh. really fun. Um, and then uh, eventually decided that, you know, if I was going to make a career of this, I, you know, needed to have year-round work. Yep. And um, it took a few years, but I eventually got a a permanent year-round job with the National Park Service at Point Reyes National Seashore, Ooh. which was a really cool change yeah. from working in desert parks and mountain parks to go to a seashore yeah. and uh, learn marine mammals and marine weather and pelagic birds and, you know, all of the um, really cool things about, you know, kind of coastal California. Yeah. Um, and I was there for a couple years, and it was really a neat area to live, um, to visit a lot of other National Park Service sites, you yep. know, everything in the San Francisco area. Um, it's amazing how close it is yeah. to San Francisco. Yeah. So much stuff. Yeah. It did you was, work out at the really lighthouse cool. ever? I did. Did you live out there? I did not. Okay. No. <laughs> that always seemed hardcore to me, the people. Yeah, the wind. The wind. It's like <sighs> yeah. the alpine. The wind yeah, is it's pretty just brutal. Nonstop. Yeah. And fog comes through there too, right? A little bit. Not too much. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit. Yeah, Point Reyes is awesome. Yeah. So I worked there and then um, Joshua Tree National Park. Ooh, man. Um, in Southern California and then um, back here at Rocky. So You've hit a lot of great places. Yeah, I'm kind of picky. I have to, <laughs> you know, I, I have to be in a place that kind of feeds my soul. Yeah, it speaks to you, right? Um, you know, I like to visit a lot yeah. of, you know, everything in the National Park Service I feel is, you know, valuable and important and sure. inspirational and really cool to visit, but not all of the National Park Service sites or places I would want to work just because I need right. to be really right. personally kind of excited about. Yeah, I think that's important. When I was doing that job where I was making maps, I traveled to all kinds of sites from, like, you know, big parks Mm -hmm. like this um, down to tiny little Revolutionary War battlefields and and everything in between. And, it's you know, the people that were at those sites were excited about those sites. So I think it's great. Yeah, it's like there's niches for lots of different people. And, in fact, I think a lot of people end up in these little subcultures of the NPS, Mm -hmm. which is what I've kind of learned. Like, I remember when I was down at... um, uh, some some Civil War parks in the South, you know, they're like, yeah, the Cannonball Circuit, you know. It's like people who just they love the Civil War. And I feel like especially in interpretation, like you have to love 
We have to love the stories you're yeah, telling. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. If you're not, if you don't love it, you'll either get bored of it or whatever, and then it shows yeah. for the visitors. You're you know? not going to be as effective at actually exactly. doing your job. Yeah, that's great that you're able to be in so many places that, that work for you. And so since you've been back at Rocky, have you always been in at the Alpine Visitor Center? You know, the first couple years I was back here, I was not up at the Alpine Visitor Center. Yeah. Um, I was down on the east side of the park mm-hmm. helping run the Sheep Lakes operation, mm-hmm. which is another really cool place in Rocky. Um, a lot of great people that dedicate their time to working there yeah. and helping protect the bighorn sheep and, and um, yeah. tell that story to the visitors. Yeah, so that's down in Horseshoe Park. Mm-hmm. Um, fastest way is from Fall River entrance, right? Yeah. Yep. Just, you know, for our visitors, <laughs> look it up on our website, Fall River Entrance, Sheep Lakes information. So you did that for a little bit. I did. Um, but, you know, honestly, one of my dreams in coming back to Rocky Mountain National Park was to work at the Alpine Visitor Center and to kind of manage this part of the park uh-huh. from an interpretive standpoint. Uh-huh. Um, I just love the high elevation. It's really, it's really for me, what makes Rocky really special. Yeah. It's the it's the part of the park that I love the most. Um and yeah, so when I was able to come back up here and um, and start, you know, managing the Alpine Visitor Center and um, you know recruiting volunteers and yeah. park staff that were also really excited about this environment, uh, yeah, it's it's been awesome. It's going to be hard to to leave. Yeah, man, it's <laughs> hard to top this. No pun intended. <laughs> it is the highest elevation park uh, visitor center in the National Park it Service. Is. For those it who is. might not know, yeah, surprisingly, the second highest elevation visitor center, I'm pretty sure, is in Hawaii. Really? Yeah. Haleakala? Haleakala, yeah. That makes sense. I never thought about that. But a lot of people would not expect that. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I remember one winter I almost got, almost took an internship there in Haleakala, and they were like, yeah, by the way, it's real cold up here and remote. It is very high I think their visitor center is at like 10,000 feet. Yeah, it's it's really high up there. Like, it gets below freezing a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Why it is an amazing place. So... You've been up here running the Alpine Visitor Center for a while. What are some of the, I'm sure there are many, challenges of running the Alpine Visitor Center? Because it's such a, it's such a crazy place to build anything. <laughs> you know it is, and that's honestly what I tell my staff, <laughs> my new staff in the spring, before we can even get up here because yeah. the road is still closed. Yeah, when can you usually get plowing. up here? Usually late May. We, you know, we May. shoot for Memorial Day weekend, but that I, more right. times than not doesn't happen. It's so usually, you don't have long between... When you can get here, when no. it opens to the public. No. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, it's kind of honestly a ridiculous place to have a building. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's it's a little over the top. Um, so I think just the, the location is kind of uh-huh. ridiculous. You know, we don't have running water for the first few weeks that we're open in the spring and for the last three or four weeks that we're open in the fall, which, um, you know, it's not a big hardship or anything, but it surprises but a lot of visitors. Yeah. They're not prepared for it. Absolutely. They don't understand why they can't have a flush toilet. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, little things like that make it kind of challenging uh-huh. sometimes. Um, the weather is totally squirrely, especially in the early season and late season. We can have blizzards blow in, you know, 60, 70 mile an hour wind gusts. Yeah. Lightning. I mean, our building has been struck by lightning before. Yeah. Um, when it gets, when, when it's really kind of dicey, you step outside and you can hear our lightning rod on the roof humming. Ooh. Uh, and that's always a sign to go <laughs> right back inside yeah. <laughs> and tell people to put their umbrellas away. So, yeah, when people drive up, they'll see, or if they look at pictures online, you know, these huge logs on the roof. Mm-hmm. That's for snow load, I assume. Uh, it's to hold the roof on in the winter so it doesn't blow off. hold the roof on from the wind. Yeah. Okay, because yeah. the wind up here is crazy. Yeah, 100 mile an hour plus in the winter. And then, yeah, all the lightning, you know, rods sticking up. Yeah. So, there you go. <laughs> yep, yep. So, yeah, the building tells its story pretty well. Yeah. Uh, 
but yeah, it's just, uh, and then, you know, people, um, like I mentioned earlier, it's kind of otherworldly for a lot of visitors. Mm -hmm. They, they pop above tree line and it's like no other place they've ever been. And the road doesn't have guardrails and their heart's pounding a little faster and they can't quite catch their breath. And the road doesn't have guardrails and they're freaking out and they pull into the parking lot and they're having a full on panic attack. Um, (laughs) and you know, we, we, calmly and yeah. confidently reassure them that uh, the road is just as wide here as it is in Kansas. And, um, you know, it, it can be really scary, though. Yeah, and, it does scare a lot of people, yeah. understandably. So so just the kind of the visitor dynamic, um, you know, people coming in not feeling well, people coming in freaked out about the road, yeah. um, people coming in just super, you know, blissed out because this is a pretty incredible environment. Yeah. So you get the full gamut. Um, so you never, you never quite know what your day is going to bring, right. which is one of the reasons I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it can be an interesting place to work <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, what is it about the Alpine for you that, that speaks to you? I mean, I certainly can relate to that because I, I find the same thing. You know, the first time that I went above tree line, I guess probably was in Yellowstone and I was just like, this is it. This yeah. is it for me. You know, yeah. I just immediately loved it. And I and I think as many people as there are who are kind of freaked out by it, there's a lot of people who have that feeling. But what is it what is it for you that keeps the magic going? You know, I kinda think it's a combination of of the um just the visual landscape, you know, the the incredible views, the fact that you can see mountain ranges that are, you know, forty, fifty miles away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that it's such just wide open expanse mm-hmm. um of a landscape and that kind of combined with the the really hardy cool you know quirky adaptations to the plants um interesting animals that are only found in the high elevations um you know i'm definitely a plant person mm-hmm. so i geek out yeah, on the <laughs> alpine flowers totally yeah. um you know and just the fact that it's it's like such a harsh environment and the weather and the climate really shape it on some some super um, in super nuanced ways mm-hmm. that I just find really intriguing, and mm-hmm. I'm always discovering something new. And um, yeah. yeah, it's just it's just an incredible landscape. It's my happy place. It's yeah. where I go in my head when I need to be in my happy place. Yeah, that, that's a good point. About uh, one thing I always like is kind of the rawness because mm-hmm. things are so on the edge that you can like see natural processes fairly clearly compared to lots of places you know there's not trees covering up or there's there's complexity of course there's a lot of complexity but there's also a certain straightforwardness about it it's pared down a little bit yeah you can just see like how you know even looking out here you can see how on steeper slopes like grasses will kind of shift down Mm -hmm. and you can see how frost affects things and you can see how slope affects things. Right, so, exactly. That's yeah. a big one is, yeah, yeah. seeing like north-facing versus south-facing mm-hmm. or east or west mm-hmm. and how that has an effect. And you just see all these natural things kind of laid out laid out uh, in front of you. And then, yeah, too, the power is like you can't ignore it. You, yeah. you, there, you can have no illusion that you're in charge. <laughs> it's just because any, I mean, it, every day that illusion will be shattered by something. Yeah. And to me, also, it feels a little bit like going into space because it's like you get a little bit of the year where you can come up here and be relatively comfortable mm-hmm. as a biological human. <laughs> and then most of the year, 
is just completely un- unsurvivable for yeah. a person. Yeah, super harsh. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just crazy. And one thing I wanted to come back to, because you mentioned a little bit earlier, and I, I think a lot of visitors may not may not know the kind of human history mm-hmm. of, of Trail Ridge and um, before it was a road, just Trail Ridge. Can you talk about that a little bit and what it was used for and and the role that it played for different cultures? Yeah, so the human history here goes back um, at least 12,000 years. Wow. Um, we found archaeological evidence in the park of people using the the high country, especially, um, you know, way back. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, kind of seasonally, of course, just like you just mentioned, you know, it's not the kind of environment that humans can live in year round. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's a very rich environment in the summer mm-hmm. as far as animal um, migration, of course, you know, 12,000 plus years ago, there was different species here than there is today. But, you know, prehistoric people used this area for hunting, for gathering, for travel between um, kind of intermountain valleys. Uh, and the the routes that they used um, continued to be used um, down into more modern native peoples. Um, the Ute uh, people used this area for um, a long time uh, uh, I think at least, you know, 500, 600 plus years. Um, and they used those same travel corridors that the prehistoric people used. You mm-hmm. know, there wasn't this big, um, you know, break. It was kind of a continuous um, use of this area. And once again, you know, archaeological evidence of camps in the high country, of, um, uh, you know, spiritual significance and places mm. of really, um, uh, you know, powerful um you know, religion for, for the, for the native people. Um, we found, you know, archeological evidence of that, uh, as well as areas where animals were, um, captured and butchered mm-hmm. for food. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a incredibly rich human history in this area. And, you know, even today we're learning more about that human history and how, you know, different spiritual sites in the park might be tied together and, and might have ties to the seasons or to astronomical events mm. Um, or to other sites um, at lower elevation and how they might be linked. Um, and then kind of the late arrivers on the scene, the Arapaho, um, you know, in the 1800s came into this area. And, you know, the Arapaho and Ute are, are still, they still consider this a very significant place in their culture. Mm. Um, a lot of spiritual significance still here. Um, the rivers in particular here, the fact that so many rivers start in the park mm-hmm. is really significant. Um, and then these high, high elevation areas, some of the, um, kind of spiritual sites, uh, are, are still considered really sacred to, um, Ute and Arapaho mm. even today, mm. which I think is cool. Um, yeah. you know, I, I think, you know, a lot of our visitors feel a spiritual connection to this yeah. landscape and that's not something new. That's not like, oh, they made it a national park and right. now people can, you know, have this incredible, you know, spiritual um, experience and yeah. connection to this place. You know, this has been a significant place for um, humans for a long, long time. Right. Um, yeah, it's been speaking to people for a long time. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're very latecomers on the scene yeah. in the grand scheme of things as oh, the National Park Service absolutely. goes. Absolutely. And and I think it's interesting too that, I mean, just when when you when people come to visit, or if you're not coming to visit, but you want to look online, um, go to our park website, see a map, or or look it up on any map, and just look at look at Trail Ridge, not Trail Ridge Road, but just Trail Ridge, and you'll see 
it just makes sense as a place mm-hmm. to travel. And yeah. so we have um, the Ute Trail that you can mm-hmm. hike on that follows pretty closely uh, the foot trail that was mm-hmm. used. And even Trail Ridge Road doesn't stray too far from that. It doesn't for, for many miles. Yeah. Trail Ridge Road follows They're that coincident, route that was right? used yeah. by prehistoric and yeah. um, Ute and Arapaho people. Yeah, it's... I always enjoy thinking about that when I'm here, that, that, um, like you said, the park itself, it's been here now over a hundred years, which seems old, but is a very small drop in the bucket that people have been here for, for a really long time. What are the most common visitor questions that you get up here? Well, certainly about the building. Why are the logs on the roof? Okay. Um, it's kind of an interesting architectural yeah. Component. Yeah. Uh, you know. And we, so we covered that. We covered that. To keep the roof from getting ripped off exactly. by insane wind. Yep. Keeps the building okay. from blowing away. Um, you know, we get a lot of questions about the the poles along the road. Oh, yeah. Um, that's a good the one. The snow poles. Yeah. Yep, yep. A lot of people think it's to measure the depth of snow. Uh-huh. In fact, they are put there so that the plow drivers can find the road yeah. in the spring. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is pretty mind-boggling to think about. Yeah. If, uh, we, we've been for the past few years, posting pictures every spring when the road crew are up here. So go on our Facebook and scroll back a little bit into into May and and look at some of those pictures, and you'll see why the snow poles exist. <laughs> yeah, you cannot see the road. It's so that's impressive. what those are for. Yes, that's what those are for. We get a lot of questions just about hikes and, um, you know, the wildlife up here sometimes is, is new for folks, marmots and pika, and some of the bird species like the white-tailed ptarmigan are, um, are unique to uh, high mountain areas. So we get a lot of questions about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then because people have traveled, you know, from the low elevations of the park to get here, they'll, they'll make note of things along the way and we'll get questions about the, you know, the dead trees that people see from the insect outbreaks that we've had uh-huh. um, in the last couple decades due to warming temperatures and longer summers and warmer, shorter winters. Um, so we definitely get questions about that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and just people wondering where they can go to explore more, you know, the, right. Um, folks, you know, they're, they are intrigued with this landscape and, you know, being on a mountaintop is, is a pretty awesome experience. And so we get a lot of, you know, what's a good peak to hike or where can I, you know, get out and explore the tundra a little bit more. Uh-huh. Uh, and what about critters? What are the, the critters people wonder about? Well, people definitely wonder about the marmots, the okay. yellow-bellied marmots, even though they're not exclusively found in the alpine tundra. People seem to notice them and see them more up here. Um, you know, so people wonder, you know, what was that animal? Mm -hmm. Was it a beaver? Uh Um, you know, uh, they'll, you know, they'll wonder what it was doing. Yeah. Uh, And then the pika, of course, Uh um, the American pika, which is, uh, at least in this part of the world, um, pretty much a high elevation animal. Yeah. Um, and, and an animal we're definitely really watching, you know, we mentioned how this is such a harsh environment. It's kind of like life on the edge. And, uh, you know, because things are so fine-tuned to the environment up here, um, changes in the environment definitely can have right. um, significant ramifications for sure. some of these species. And the pika, because they're so well adapted to cold, but not so much to warm um, in the summers. Um, and then they, they of course, can't be too cold in the winters. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're concerned about changes in snowpack affecting them in the winter and then warmer temperatures in the summer affecting if whether or not they can gather enough food to make it through the winter. Right. So people ask about the pika and it's a good opportunity to talk a little bit about some of the research that's ongoing in the park and some of the things we're learning about this environment as it as it does change mm-hmm. um, with uh, you know the changes that are happening yeah. in the climate. Yeah, any changes to, to averages you see, you can s- start to see pretty quickly up here a lot of yeah. time. I mean, on the, 
the decade scale, which is enough for people to be able to actually notice, even well, people who visited here or worked here for a long time. Well, even something as simple as a snowfield, you know, we get a lot of questions about the snowfield right here from the Alpine Visitor Center that we're looking at. And, um, you know, we used to consider it a permanent snowfield mm-hmm. because in the history of the park, at least, no one had ever seen it melt. And then mm-hmm. I believe it melted for the first time completely in 2003. It was gone. And um, it doesn't melt every year now, uh-huh. but, you know, I wouldn't consider it a permanent snowfield anymore. Right. And so, you know, that's one of those changes that people who have visited, you know, over the years might witness themselves. So it's not always a, a change that a scientist has to do in-depth mm-hmm. research um, to to determine. Sometimes it's as simple as noticing that, wow, I've never seen that snowfield as small as it is. Or wasn't there always snow here in late August? Uh-huh. And this year there's not. What's uh-huh. going on? So. Um, so yeah, the Alpine tundra definitely, you know, has a lot of, I think, important lessons about changes that are, that are happening and then what that might mean for the future. So we'll end with two questions. Okay. Second to last question, penultimate, whatever the word is. Um, if you could give, we've, we've covered a lot of tips about safety, where you can see things, animals, questions, things like that. Mm -hmm. So kind of apart from that, more general if you could give people one piece of advice or one just something to keep in mind as they as they come to rocky they come uh to the alpine maybe come to the alpine visitor center what would it be can be it can be practical or it can be more hmm, not practical i guess (laughs) (laughs) i mean i guess i would just say um you know take the time to really notice the little things. Mm. You know, a place like Rocky, the landscape itself can overwhelm you because it's just like yelling at you in your face. Like, look <laughs> at me. This view is amazing. Yeah. You know, how can you notice anything else? Sure. Um, and I think, you know, that that alone is very powerful. But I think when folks kind of um, zoom in on a more, mac- you know, a more micro scale, mm-hmm. they they can really discover some true treasures, uh, whether it's, Noticing how an animal is behaving Mm -hmm. or noticing that teeny tiny, you know, alpine flower at their feet that they almost stepped on because they were enjoying the view. Uh Um, Or just noticing, you know, something down at lower elevations um, with, you know, a rotting log in the forest and, and, you know, what's growing around it. You Mm -hmm. know, sometimes those little things, I think, sometimes can layer on top of the overwhelming landscape pieces of a place like Rocky Mountain National Park and just add an incredible richness to your experience. So like, take the time to notice the little things, whatever that might mean, wherever you are in right. the park. That's great. Take the time to notice the little things. And finally, so your first internship was at Rocky, you worked <laughs> here before, you've worked here now. What does Rocky mean to you? Hard question. Wow. Tough that question. a hard question. What does Rocky mean to Kathy me? Kathy had a hard time with it too. Probably everybody will, but I'm going to ask everybody anyway. You know, I think it's changed over the years. You know, when mm-hmm. I first came here as kind of a, you know, wide-eyed intern, it meant, you know, just this really wild landscape, um, you know, that I had to kind of prove myself in mm. and figure out, you know, how to be confident and capable in. And I think now having worked here for a long time and having explored a lot of other Western landscapes as mm-hmm. an adult, mm-hmm. you know, backpacking and um, you know, really, really getting to know places. Mm-hmm. Um, I think now I see it more as a, um, 
as a place to introduce people. Like it's not as wild to me now huh. that I've spent time in other places uh-huh. that are, you know, bigger acreage wise and less visited people wise. Mm. And, um, <clears throat> you know, a little, maybe a little more remote. Mm. Um, like I don't feel kind of that sense of, of real kind of wildness and almost, you know, a, an edge of danger to uh, it uh-huh. as I did when I first came here. Uh-huh. So now I see it as like a really cool place to introduce other people to like wildness. So I kind of uh-huh. see it as like, um, like a, I don't know, like a, like the baby pool uh-huh. um, yeah. for our visitors. And, right. and I, and I, and I see a lot of our visitors experiencing it that way. Yeah. You know, they, this is the first place they've really hiked very much. And mm-hmm. You know, this is the first place they figured out how to pee in the woods uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know, how to use a water filter. Sure. And so I, I kind of see it now for visitors. Um, it's it's what it was to me, uh-huh. uh, yeah. you know, a long time ago. Right. It was the place I kind of like got my wilderness legs under sure. me and really learned to love wild places and exploring them yeah. on a more intimate level. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think about that a lot a lot with Rocky and with a lot of national parks in, in general is that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of public land other than national parks. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of it is really remote and out there with little to no visitor services, certainly no paved road that exactly. goes up to 12,000 feet. But this is a place where you can come with your family or you can come regardless of your experience level and see what, you know, the Southern Rockies can be what Alpine can be. And then when you look at a map and you see all this stuff that, yeah. that is so hard to get to, you can you can have a personal appreciation and connection for it and, and understand um, the importance of it, you know. I think that's a great point. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. You this are has very been welcome. super fun. Yeah. And, uh, you Anytime know, if, I can talk about the high mountains, I'm happy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, when people come up to Alpine Visitor Center, maybe you'll see Cynthia. If you do, say hi. Yeah, stop in and say hi. And uh, we hope we'll see you soon. And that's our show. Thank you for joining us on this second episode of the Rocky Mountain National Podcast. We have got a ton of great episodes in the works. We've been scheduling things left and right. So um, again, our public information officer, we're actually going to ride one of our shuttle buses up to Bear Lake and walk around Bear Lake and uh, talk about the Rocky Pledge, talk about um, just general tips for seeing the park and learn what a public information officer does at a park. It's actually a really, really interesting job. And Kyle has a ton of cool experience to share with you. Uh, we're going to be talking to our volunteer program coordinator, our museum curator. We're going to be talking to backcountry folks, um, climbing rangers. We have all sorts of stuff lined up for you. So we encourage you to subscribe for all future episodes for sure. And go on iTunes and uh, give us some reviews if you like our show. Um, we have a couple up there already, which is great. We appreciate those. And those just help people find our podcast and help it grow. You can also go to our homepage which is at go.nps.gov forward slash rmnpod, where you can get show notes, you can see a few pictures, there's a transcription available, and you can actually leave comments for any of our episodes. There's a little comment section at the bottom of each post, 
and we would love any feedback you have for stories you would like to hear, um, ways the podcast could be improved, um, anything you have that can make this be the best it can be. So we appreciate all your feedback, and we look forward to seeing you in two weeks. The Rocky Mountain National Podcast is a product of Rocky Mountain National Park, one of 417 units of the National Park Service that preserve America's heritage for all, forever. Thank you so much, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.